This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. Welcome everyone, good evening. I want to start with um, the article I mentioned last week, which appeared in the New Yorker. And um, it's a review of a book called Chatter. And it was written by an experimental psychologist named Ethan Cross. And the, the gist of it is that um, our inner critic exists for a reason and that we can learn to harness its energy and use it for our benefit. And I confess I have not read the book, so I'm really basing this on the review, but there were some, some interesting points that I thought would be worthwhile to bring out. And just before I do that, let me uh, introduce here a Buddhist term that is germane to the subject. And the term is papanka. And there's really no literal translation for it, but um, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who's a Western monk, has um, in, uh, he, he, he wrote a, an article on this and he um, offered some possibilities. And to introduce them, he says, <clears throat> Dependent on I and forms, I consciousness arises. And so this is true of the other five senses, the ear, the nose, the tongue, body, mind. And the meaning of the three, so in this case, the sense, so I, a form and I consciousness, when the three meet, there is contact. So, and I touched on this briefly before, so, um, here's a cup, right? Here's my hand and touch consciousness. And the three of them together uh, create contact. In the moment there is contact, there's a feeling. And starting with the feeling, there's a, there's a notion of an agent, right? There's a me, in this case, the, the feeler. And the, the agent acts on the object. And so when we feel, we perceive, and we label in the mind, I immediately know this is a cup. And what we perceive, we think about. We papancize, Tanisaru Bhikkhu says. So through the process of papansa, papanka, sorry, the agent becomes a victim of his or her own patterns of thinking. So he says that based on what I papancize, the perceptions and categories of papanka itself assail me with regard to past, present, and future forms. So it's a little abstract. So I feel this cup. This cup is nice. I love this cup. I don't really like my roommate's cups because they're a little too big and I can't quite put my hand around them, you know, like, like this. They're a little crude, 
you know, those cups. This one is kind of dainty. Plus someone made this for me. My roommate's cups, you know, my roommate made them for herself. She didn't make them for me. And really, if you think about it, that's kind of stingy of her. I mean, she could have made me a cup, right? I mean, we've lived together for a couple of years by now, for God's sakes. Why don't she make me a cup? Papanka. <laughs> so Tanisaru Bhikkhu says, the root, the root of the categories of Papanka is the perception, I am the thinker. I am the one experiencing this cup. And from this self-reflective thought, I conceive a self, a thing corresponding to the concept of I. And from this, all these various categories arise. Being, not being, me, not me, mine, not mine, doer, done to. And so you see the, the process, right? When we identify with the one who's experiencing based on feelings, based from contact with an object, some of those feelings will seem appealing, some of them won't. And those that are appealing will want more of them. And some of those that are unappealing will want to push away. And so from this arises desire and aversion, which is really just another form of desire, right? Desire for what is present to not be, to be far away. And that desire comes into conflict with the desires of others who are, who are also papancizing. So from this internal process of objectification and comparison, conflict arises externally. So bringing it down to earth, I mean, it's essentially saying, this is all in our heads, all in our heads, you know, if you think about it. And that's not quite a fair uh, way to, to, to say it. it it's, it's in our mind, it's in mind. And so really, all of the conflict that we see in the world arises out of that tiny, tiny word, me. Actually, even tinier, I, a hair's breadth worth of a word. All of that pain. Because I want and you want. And so often those wants are different. And so from this, the translations that Tanisaru Bhikkhu gives for Papanka are objectification, <clears throat> self-reflexive thinking, reification, which is often used in Buddhism, proliferation, complication, elaboration, distortion. And my favorite is proliferation because you get the sense of, of it, you know, with, with that one little seed of a thought, all of a sudden it begins to proliferate, it, it blooms and it expands, if you let it, quite quickly. Complication, distortion is also interesting because it implies this isn't really how things are. It implies there's another way of being, another way of seeing that doesn't create conflict. What is that, right? If, if this happens so quickly, so immediately, 
how is it possible to arrest that proliferation? And is that something that we even want? Because, you know, what I describe is in one sense a little bit negative, but we can also think of creativity and imagination and the proliferation that comes out of creative expression. And so it's not that all of it is negative. And so now keeping all of this in mind, now this is what some of that review of Chatter says. We are perpetually slipping away from the present into the parallel nonlinear world of our minds. Our quote unquote default state is a rich zone of remembrance, musing and projection. And then the reviewer says, this is a quiet rejoinder to new age wisdom because we're actually not designed to live in the moment, quote unquote. We're not designed to live in the moment. And some of the experiments that Cross made bear this out. And they show that the, that the purpose of that inner dialogue is to create a kind of um, simulation, right? So we assess our progress. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves, about others. We've spoken about this. And I often say, you know, that we tell stories in order to understand who we are. And so much of this dialogue is useful, but a lot of it is not because we tend to focus on negative content. And so I've um, often wondered about this, you know, why, if it creates conflict within us, why if, if um, the, the result of this is negativity, why do we focus more on what is negative, on what we lack, on what we need to change. And I don't mean, you know, the things that need to change in ourselves and in the world, but those small and large dissatisfactions <clears throat> that take up all of our energy and our time. Why is it so difficult to be in the moment? Now, you know, needless to say, you know, all of this um, proliferation creates stress. And it also takes up bandwidth in our brain. So as we're, we're talking to ourselves about what we're doing, experiencing, our, our neurons have the double job. They have to listen to the chatter and process it. And they also have to complete the task that they've been, uh, that they've set out, you know, to complete. And not to mention from a Buddhist perspective, our views color our experience. I mean, they shape, completely shape our experience. So if our internal dialogue is negative, our experience and our view will be negative as well. And again, this seems like a no brainer. And so why do we have such a hard time to switching to joy? Why do we have to talk about it so much? I can't tell you how many times I've assigned it as a practice to people, deliberate practice. I've assigned it to myself to deliberately turn toward and cultivate joy. 
I mean, you'd think that we would want to move toward it naturally. And that's not what happens. And personally, I think a lot of it does have to do with our inability to be present. And so we talk to ourselves for reassurance, for inspiration, for guidance and support. And we compare, we correct, we criticize, we evaluate, we disparage. As you can imagine, there is an antidote. And it's so simple that it's almost embarrassing. And so there's a sutra called the Madhupindika Sutta, the ball of honey, in which the Buddha speaks about this. <clears throat> and so as the sutras so often, I really always start, thus have I heard, the Blessed One lived among the Shakyans in Kapilavastu. And one morning he went on his alms rounds, he went into the great wood and he sat down for the day's abiding, the sutra says. I really love that. He sat down for the day's abiding. And I was thinking, I'm gonna start saying that when I sit down in front of my computer. I'm sitting down for the day's abiding. Not to get things done, not to rush through the work I have to do to get to what I really want to do, but to abide, to be in each moment of work in each moment of my life. And we say this all the time, don't we? But is that what we really do? Is that how we live? And so the Buddha is sitting in the great wood and then he um, is teaching and he's just there with his monks. And that day there's a man there by the name of Dandapani, which means stick in hand. And the sutra says, who went roaming and rambling for exercise. And I guess he just happens upon the Buddha in the great wood and they exchange greetings. And then Dantapani stands to one side as a sign of respect. And he asks the Buddha, what is the contemplative's doctrine? What sort of doctrine do you proclaim? And the Buddha says, is the sort of doctrine where one does not quarrel with anyone else? In all of the cosmos, with its divas, its maras, its brahmas, with all of its contemplatives and brahmans, its royalty and its common folk, is the sort of doctrine where perceptions no longer obsess the person. And so they remain free of perplexity, of craving, of wanting to become and not become. This is my doctrine. This is what I proclaim. My teaching is for those who don't want to create conflict, who don't want to obsess and crave and make things complicated. And do you know what Dandapani's response was? He shakes his head, he wags his tongue, he raises his eyebrows so that his forehead has three wrinkled furrows and he leaves, <laughs> leaning on his stick. I guess he didn't like it. <laughs> he didn't like the Buddha's response. Maybe he thought it was too general, too abstract, too unattainable. Maybe he thought, not for me. 
not in this lifetime. And so that evening, the Buddha gets together with his monks and he tells them what happened. And so they ask, well, what kind of person is this who's free of conflict? How? How do they do that? And he says, when they notice their papan sizing, I'm paraphrasing, he says, they see there's nothing for them to obsess. There's nothing for them to, for them to relish, nothing to crave. He sees the emptiness. They see the emptiness of each of these constructions, each of these elements. But in the middle of an argument with yourself or with someone else, it feels very real, right? It is very real. And, you know, I was, uh, I'm still reading Harari's book, Homo Deus, and this line struck me. He says, the modern world positively requires uncertainty and disturbance. And I thought, that's it. That's it. So do we. So do we. The self at odds with itself exists. You see? A self at peace is in danger of, of not existing in the old way. And the self knows this. Why do you think it freaks out? when you start to get quiet. The self doesn't want to be forgotten. It doesn't want to be seen through as the illusion that it is. No, of course not. And it, it's hanging, it's hanging by a very, very tenuous thread. And so you could say that our, our work, part of our work is to see it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to hang on because there's nothing to hang on to anyway. That's the whole point. That is what the Buddha saw. And so he says, the person who recognizes their papancizing, their thoughts, their feelings are proliferating, they get close. And then they get closer still. And then they see there's nothing there. Soen Roshi tells a story. He was um, Edo Roshi's teacher, uh, founder of Daibosatsu. And once the Shin, he was waiting outside the bathroom. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And finally, he knocks on the door. There's no answer. Very gingerly, he opens the door. There's nobody there. And he just bursts out laughing. And he said, exactly. There's never anybody there. <laughs> exactly. And my own teacher has said to me, remind yourself of this true truth. I mean, there's realizing it, of course. But remind yourself, this too is empty. And so the Buddha says this, and he gets up and he leaves. And the monks are thinking about it and they think, well, you know, he didn't really explain. So who is there among us who might analyze the unanalyzed detailed meaning of, these, of this brief statement? I mean, is this really what they said? <laughs> who might analyze the unanalyzed detailed meaning of this brief statement? And they realize 
Venerable Mahakakana, one of the Buddha's students, he can explain this. And so they go to him. And he says, you know, you're like people who are looking for the tree's heartwood. And instead, you're looking at the branches and the leaves. You just had the Buddha in front of you. And now you're asking me, what are you thinking? And they say, well, yeah, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you're right. But can you just tell us and not make things complicated? That's actually what they say. And, you know, every now and then you see in, in the sutras a very human moment like this. And you can almost, you can almost hear the scribe chuckling, you know, as they took this down. And so Mahakakana says, okay. And then he breaks it down as Tanisaru Bhikkhu did. So dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. There is contact, there is feeling, there's perception, there's thought. I turn it into an object. There's past, present, future, papanka. And then he says, he tells them what you can do about it. He basically says with each one of these elements, you can create a delineation which is an interesting way to think about it. He's basically saying, just notice that it has kind of like a, an edge to it. Create space between each of these. So frankly, I think, you know, like between contact and feeling, for example, or feeling and perception, it would be possible, but difficult. I mean, it happens almost instantaneously, but you can certainly create space between thought and objectification. It is that moment every now and then when you see something, you hear something, you, you taste something directly. The moment before thought, the moment before you framed it and said, oh, it's this, and I'm the one feeling it, experiencing it. It's that moment. And so he's basically saying, okay, right there, in that space, that's where you have space to question the critic, the cynic, the judge, the voice that says, you're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. Enough for what? That's the place where we can begin to, to ask enough for what? I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth $184 billion and it seems like it's still not enough. When is enough? What is enough and for whom? And so slowing, slowing things down. So much of practice is slowing things down, allowing for that space, dwelling in the moment. We arrest our thoughts proliferation. We slow down papanka. And when it doesn't have anything to feed on, it dies off. It needs that nurturing. I mean, you probably forgot this already, but the sutra is called the ball of honey. And I was like, why is it called the ball of honey? And the reason is the very end is um, the monks hear Mahakakana's explanation and they go back to the Buddha and they tell him what happened. And he says, I would have answered the same way. Good for Mahakakana. And Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and his attendant, is, he's so delighted with this, with this uh, teaching. He says, it's like a person tasting a bowl of honey. 
and finding a sweet, delectable flavor. And he says, in the same way, someone who listens to this teaching, to this discourse, and who understands its meaning, they experience confidence, they experience gratification, they're fulfilled. And then he asks the Buddha, well, what is the sutra called? And he says, well, why don't you remember it as the ball of honey discourse? And I thought that's so beautiful. Just like that, he turns poison into ambrosia. He turns the bitter into the sweet. I mean, he doesn't even turn it. Just with a few well-chosen words, he shows what was always there, what was always present. But now, now we can actually taste it. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.